The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders. Going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan and now back to the podcast hi everyone you are listening to judging Megan with your host Megan judge um I am so happy to be back in Los Angeles I was just on a trip back east. I was seeing all of my college friends. I hadn't seen them in like seven years. And it was just so nice. We were in um, the Hamptons and the weather was beautiful. And it was just one of those times in life where you're just like, I am so happy. I feel so complete. The only bad part was... There were a couple, there was a little bit of drama because we're women and that's just how we roll. But there was there was one part that was so weird. So we took an Uber to get to a restaurant one night and there was this Uber driver and like I might even bring my guest Michael Gersh in to give his input on this. But I we got in this Uber and you know like right away where you get like a bad vibe off of somebody. So my friends were late getting into the Uber and I was just sitting in it and I was apologizing to him like, sorry, they're running so late. But he seemed off. And I and like I feel like you really need to listen to your instincts as a human when you have something that you that says, especially getting into an Uber, you're you're putting your life into somebody else's hands. Right. So we get into the Uber. My friends all get in and the windows were down. And when and it granted, we're all a bunch of women and, you know, women don't want windows down. I don't know if you know that, Michael, but we don't like our hair to get messed up. And, you know, we put makeup on all this stuff and it was really humid. So my one friend in the back is like, excuse me, sir, can we put the, can you put the windows up and put the air conditioning on? The man, I looked at him. I have, I literally saw my life flash between, before my eyes. He flipped out on us. I don't even know, like he was from another country and didn't speak English. I don't even know like what he said. He could have been like, I'm going to kill you. I have no idea. But he was started screaming at the top of his lungs and was like, I don't even know if he said get out. But I said to him, I was like, please pull over the car. So there we are, all of us dressed up, humid on the side of the highway in the Hamptons. And it was really scary. It was really, really scary. I hate to start this episode with like a story like that, but I wanted to list tell my listeners because if you have a bad feeling about something and you get into these ubers or lifts or whatever you're taking listen to your instincts because i don't know like i told my one friend i was like you got to leave him a bad review and then my other friend's like well he knows where we live so it's like the whole thing michael what what do you think about ubers and have you ever had a bad situation <laughs> <laughs> Where do you go from there? <laughs> I don't know. I wanted to put you on the spot. I wanted to ask you. I'm just happy you didn't have the child locks on and you guys were able to get out of the car. 
Oh my gosh, I know. No, I'm telling you right now, you, you I looked in his eyes. I was like, I, I said to my friends, I'm like, get out. Like, it was really scary. So <laughs> you know, anyways. Scary, I, and it's, it's very scary because you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, even though they have the no. lights as Uber and they're, and they're on, the, on the app, you, you have no idea. Um, taxi cabs are a little bit safer because they do the background checks and, and, and whatnot. It's a little bit more, I think, more of a check and balance with a taxi cab. Yeah, but I'm also a firm believer of using a designated driver no matter what than 100%. an Uber or a Lyft because because as a parent, I, I'm not too sure you have, you have kids, Megan. I have kids. I have two kids. Yeah, yeah. So, so what do you tell your kids about getting in the cars with strangers? No, well, they're too young. I'm like hell now. Right, but they're only right, not. Exactly. They're eight and twelve. Yeah. Right. So now, as adults, we're getting in the cars with strangers and we're intoxicated. Yeah, You know, it's almost the same thing. And a couple of years ago, they released the report, the crime reports. There were, you know, uh, burglaries, rape, sexual, you know, sexual assaults, murder. Yes, murder, yes. You know, through all those stuff. And yet we continue to do it thinking we're going to be safe. And like in your case, you just asked to put the windows up on very minor detail. And yeah, and and like we're going to get into your story and it maybe like this is something – we should address in the beginning, but I, I, right. this is my take on it. So when we got out of the car, I said to my friends, I was like, you know, I have a big problem with this. You don't know what. And yeah, there were rapes and all kinds of things that were happening. And who knows what they don't report. But you are putting your life into somebody else's hands. And we don't have any kind of how do we know they weren't like drinking or smoking pot before they came and picked us up. Right. So I right. wish that there was something that some kind of something like a breathless, something that they could put in cars in general, by the way, this should be done in general, where somebody, an Uber needs to have something like that in their car. So we know like their mental health background or whatever it is, these are our lives. So I, I tend to get on my pedestal. I try to make it light in the beginning <laughs> before the interview, but I guess I'm not today, but it is, you know, it's something that <laughs> Something that happened, and I wanted to talk about it. Um, Michael Hirsch, <laughs> I'm honored honored to have you on the podcast. Um, I have your book. Um, I I know your story is very heavy, but something I love about you that you said that you would like to talk about is using humor to and and being a man talking about grief and all of that stuff but you're like me you tend to to talk about humor or you incorporate humor to talk about grief and that was something that really stood out to me you are an author your book is called I'm going to pop it up cuz I'm now on YouTube everybody um I usually don't look too hot when I do my YouTube so just know that so your book is called The Magic of Life a son's story of hope and tragedy, grief, and a speedo. That's the best title ever. Well, we're going to have to explain it. Yeah, we'll have to explain the speedo part a little bit later. <laughs> well, we'll get into it. So let me, let's just start because I know that your trauma re started very young. Um, so I would, I if you're okay with starting with how you kind of started in the world well, sure. at a very young age, I would love my audience to hear that. Sure. And we have to because, you know, everyone, that's how my story started. I was I was eight weeks old. I was born in New York. Uh, my father, uh, on, I was born July 24th, uh, 1970. On September 19th, uh, 1970, my father was driving us back from Long Island, about an hour and a half from Long Island to our house in Spring Valley. My brother, who was three, was sleeping in the back seat, not wearing a seatbelt because it was the 70s. We couldn't find the seatbelts anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. My mom was in my was in the front middle seat next to my dad, and I was next to my mom in a little baby carrier. And we were less than a mile away from our house at an intersection. And as our light turned green, my father started to go through the intersection when a drunk driver plowed through the intersection and T-boned the car. Uh, the force of the impact was so great, it totaled the cars, because this is 1970s. You know, they built cars to last back then. Not, not like a day where you fart on a smart car and it blows over for three or four miles. They built cars back then. Mm -hmm. And the the impact of pushed our car into a telephone pole and split the car all the way up to the dashboard. So when the first responders arrived, they found my father, my mother, and my brother. They didn't find me. Fifteen 
minutes goes by, and someone found me sandwiched between the door and the dash of the car. The four of us were taken to the hospital. My, my dad had to get stitches on his face from the windshield hitting him. My brother didn't have a scratch on him, which was pretty much a, of a miracle. Uh, my mom was taken into surgery for her injuries, and as for me, nearly every bone in my body was broken. My skull was completely fractured from one side of my head to the other. Uh, so the fact that I just turned 52 uh, a few days ago is nothing short of a miracle, and and here I am. Uh, my injuries were so severe, I was life flighted to another hospital. My aunt lost count of how many blood transfusions I received to to stay alive. Uh, the doctors were telling my dad, well, your son is touching go. We don't know if he's going to survive, and my mom is fighting for her life. Uh, for me, look, I grew up to be a competitive swimmer, which is where that speedo comes into play now. Uh, I went to college on a swimming scholarship. Uh, so, you know, despite all those injuries, I grew up somewhat normal. Um, when I had to go to through um, speech therapy, we didn't know if that was due to any brain injury from the car crash or just normal childhood pains. But I know how lucky I am to be here on a daily basis, even though on the the deepest of the deeps, you know, when I get depressed or whatever, you know, you look at the grief and the trauma, you still kind of go, ah, I was kept alive for a certain reason. And, you know, I'm pretty sure if I was three or four years old in that car crash, I probably would have died. But since I was a baby in all cartilage, that probably could have saved my life because uh, I wasn't just developed. And my mom, unfortunately, was killed in that car crash. She died the morning of the 20th due to her injuries. So now you're talking to son who never knew his mom because of a drunk driver. You know, I never had the chance to run home from school and say, hey, mom, that's what I drew for you. Hey, mom, what's for dinner? Or, hey, mom, three simple words, I love you, because someone made a wrong decision then. You know, I'm 52 years old, and that word, that mom word, or the word mom, is not in my vocabulary. It's a sacred word that I never use behind any feeling behind it, you know, like love or compassion. Um, my mom's, my let mom, me, let me stop you this for year. one second. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, I tend to do this. So people that listen okay. are probably like Megan, shut up. But I first, I just have to tell you, I'm so sorry. Um, I know that I'm so just to backpedal, my best friend passed away, um, giving like after she gave birth to my godson Oof. and, um, so never knew his natural mom, you know, and so kind of hearing that story kind of makes me think and makes me sad to know that you never can remember or knew your mother. And then on top of that, before we recorded, I told Michael and I didn't have this. I said, just so you know, I did an episode with a drunk driver, somebody that spent 17 years of their life in prison for drunk driving a, f- a couple of weeks ago, and I was kind of on the fence if, are you comfortable with coming on? And something I had said um, in the podcast, and I asked him for his honest feedback. And um, and I always appreciate honest feedback, but he said, uh, Megan, I actually listened to that episode. It's the one episode I listened to because, you know, I was drawn to it in some way. And he said, I didn't like that you used the word mistake. So I kind of, for the listeners, like wanted to start by saying that as well, that um, I, 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 I want it. I think it's important to give both sides, but then to also understand the way that you said it. What did you say? Just so my listeners can understand the way that you put it about yeah. the mistake. I said a mistake shouldn't cost someone's a, a life. You know, it was a decision that person made, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that night to, and, and, you know, a drunk driver, the first time they're caught, they, they drive drunk 80 to 90 times before they're caught the very first time. So it's repeated behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, you make one mistake, you'll learn from it. But if you continue to do it, those are decisions you are making to get in the car, to, you know, after time, after time and, and driving drunk. It's like playing Russian roulette. So, um, I, I appreciate you having him on and you're hearing that side of that story. You know, he spent 17 mm-hmm. years in prison, but his sentence continues to happen, right? Just like for me, yeah. even though our dr- the drunk driver that killed my mom was sentenced to three years, you know, I, I have a lifetime sentence. That gentleman's yes. sentence, even though he's out of jail, that continues. 
And and, and you're right. No one starts out that night to be a drunk driver. I've talked to drunk drivers for 10 years now, the court system, and, and they say the same thing. You know, they didn't start out that night wanting to hurt someone or, or kill someone. But those are repeated decisions that people just continue to make because they think, oh, I got home safe and sound. You know, I'll do it again. And then they, in that gentleman's case, he killed two people, unfortunately. And I think it's so important to point out, I wanted, I didn't want to interrupt your story, but I did want to tell you, I think it's important to address how sorry I am for what you have gone through. Um, You know, that amount of trauma stays with you, even though you can't remember it um, for your whole life. Um, So I, but I also wanted to point out that it's important to talk about these things from both sides. And understand that I understand what you're saying. You know, it's, it's, we all have a decision that we make. I've made the poor decision in my life. I'm very honest about my mistakes of getting behind the wheel of a car as a teenager. I drank too much. You know, think of how many people do this and they don't have ever have the intention of hurting somebody or killing somebody, but it is a weapon, right? Right. Um, oh, very much so. And yeah. and yeah. And so can you tell me about what happened, how your mom, like, did she die of internal injuries or did she, how, what was that? My dad, my dad, yeah, my dad didn't talk a lot about my mom growing up. And you talk about okay. trauma and overcoming it. You know, I was part of that mm-hmm. recovery, you know, never talking about it. But uh, we think she died of massive head injuries. Her head either went hitting the, the rearview mirror or the dashboard because of the sudden impact uh, of, of, the, of the crash of you know, the other car hitting us. So I'm sure internal injuries. Years ago, I was in my mid-30s, I got the police report, but I couldn't get like the hospital report you know, or any more, any more details about her injuries. But my dad believes it was just a massive head injury. And then... And then you were left with no mother. And how old was your brother? My brother was three. Oh, wow. And then tell me about what, what happened next. I mean, you were so little. And you, you say you had somebody come in and kind of help raise you? I, I did, yeah. So what happened next, and, and to go back to your, your statement about trauma, and I was mm-hmm. reading a book about how the trauma impacts your, relation, your relationships and everything else. I couldn't be picked up. I'd be picked up in a pillow for months afterwards because all those broken bones. And then the research I was reading about, uh, you know, trauma as a kid, we need that physical touch, you know, later on in relationships and stuff. So I didn't even have that. And it's amazing to go back and read that and go, oh, well, that's why I'm like that, you know, at some mm-hmm. point in time. To go back to your question now, my father was working overseas at that point in time, but also 1970. You didn't hear about a lot of single fathers taking care of two, you know, young kids, you know, a baby and, and a toddler. My grandmother put it out of the newspaper for part-time help, and a woman named Dolly was visiting her sister from England. Now, Dolly's originally from Jamaica. She was in England as one of the first policewomen in Scotland Yard. She had three months vacation, and she was uh, in New York, and she hated New York. She thought Times Square was disgusting. I mean, it's 1970, not like the Times Square we have now. But she yeah. hated New York. Saw the ad, called my grandmother, made an appointment and you know, to meet with her, and then didn't show up. Um, she said she couldn't find a ride. I say she blew it off. But uh, a few <laughs> weeks goes by. Saw the ad again, called, and played, played it off like first-time caller. But my grandmother remembered her, you know, remembered her uh, Jamaican accent. This time she came to the house. Um, when she was introduced to me, I was in my crib, and she put her fingers into the crib, and I latched onto them, I smiled at her, and she said, this is where I need to be. This family needs me more than going back to Jamaica to be a nurse or going back to Scotland Yard. Well, it was supposed to be a part-time job turned into a lifetime. This woman raised me and my brother as her own flesh and blood. It wasn't about color, creed, or religion. It was about basic human need. And I, you know, I say the jokes, you know, she loved us as her own. She beat us as her own. Um, you know, yeah. it was just, you take a horrible situation of losing our mom. And here was this woman, the saint came in, oh, I will raise these kids like they're my own flesh and blood. And you don't find many people like that. Um, and I wouldn't be the person today if it wasn't for her. 
you know, I, I say I'm, I'm not only Jewish, I'm, I'm Jewish Jamaican because I, you know, I have a white Jewish family <laughs> and a black Jamaican family. Yeah. And it was a really cool way to grow up. I mean, I was born in New York. I was raised in Miami, Florida. So we left Miami. We left for Miami in 1975. And even my father passed away in 2018. Dolly turned 90 last year. And uh, she's an amazing person. I, I think she's going to outlive us all uh, the way she's going. But it, I sit back and, and think how lucky and blessed I am, even though I lost my mom. And you always play those what ifs. And I'm sure you've done that you know, through your own life. What if this didn't happen? What if? And that's, that's taxing. You could drive yourself insane going, you know, what if my mom was still alive? Would I be married? Would I have kids? Would I you know, be a comedian or whatever? But then you kind of go, this was the life I was dealt with. You know, I was handed. And I could either do something about it or not. And I say, I love that you say that because there's, I live my life doing a lot of what ifs too. And that's part mm-hmm. of why I do what this, this podcast is to talk to people mainly that have survived some sort of trauma like you. And, you know, I lost my dad as a kid. I've spent years of my adult life going, what if? Like, same thing. But I love that perspective right. of like, well, this isn't, there's no what if, this is the reality. But it is, it is something I think that you will think about forever. What, what would have, what would it have been like to grow up with my mom? Like, what was she like? You know, all of those things that you dream of being taken away. I I love what you said about Dolly and that you're a, a what do you call yourself? A Jewish Jamaican? <laughs> yeah, Jewish Jamaican. <laughs> Yeah. A Jewish Jamaican. That is really funny. So you were, I'm assuming you learned all like all the Jamaican culture and all the food and that kind of stuff. I, I probably know that culture better than Judaism, to be, to be honest with you. So, and plus it's I, I, much better food. It's good food. But I also, I don't know if you're like spiritual at all or you believe in signs or anything like that. But I do believe like this is just my opinion. I talk about a lot that life's like a series of tests. And a lot of them are like, why do I have to go through this test? This sucks. This isn't fair. Like, I don't get it. But then there is like a reason why people come into our lives. And the fact that Dolly had that calling, you know, just to to mother you and be that person how fortunate you were to have her. That's pretty incredible. It, it, it is. And when her visa was up after like three years or so, she was going to go back mm-hmm. to Jamaica. And my grandparents, uh, my grandfather was a lawyer and he sponsored her to stay. Sponsored her or kidnapped her. I'm really not too sure which one's which. But, uh, you know, she still loves us. Yeah. And she talked about unconditional love and what the human spirit could do when it's willing to do it. And. And you're right, those what ifs, because you kind of go, well, would I have been, you know, I like to have fun with it at times, because the serious what ifs, it's too much stress. So the, yeah. the fun what if is, you know, would I have been a Jets fan instead of a Dolphins fan? And that's just a horrible way to think, uh, <laughs> you know. But you know, swimming was a good outlet. So I, in college, I would swim angry. And uh, I was an angry person. It was just, you know, I was angry at God, angry at my father for never talking about my mom, angry at Harvey Dennison for killing my mom, you know, uh, those type yeah, you know, those can we, of things. Can we backpedal a little bit sure. there? I would love to know, because we didn't touch on that, the man that killed, are you comfortable talking about oh, yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about that. And did you, what was that? Did you ever get a sorry? Like, tell me what happened to him. No, I, I got a lot from the police report. So the man that killed my mother lied at the scene. He said his friend who was sitting in the back seat was the one driving. And he refused treatment at first. And then the ambulance came back to the scene. And he said, let me get treatment. And I guess the town only had one ambulance um, back then. So it was another officer who started to question him at the hospital. Noticed his eyes were bloodshot. He was combative. Excuse me. And about an hour afterwards... He finally confessed to, to driving. He, he, his license was suspended in 1967, so he shouldn't have been driving in the first place. And he admitted to drinking at least, at least a six-pack. When his blood was taken an hour after the car crash um, or whatever it was, it was like 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, he was uh, a .10. So imagine what he was at the time of the crash in terms of what his a blood alcohol level could have been. He couldn't pay his bail, 
so when the court case happened the next year, his, he was sentenced to three years in jail with time served. And that was it. That's it? So that was it. That was 1970. I have friends that have lost their loved ones in this century. Just you know, six, seven years ago, the guy that killed a, a friend's son was only sentenced to five years. So the laws and the penalty really hasn't changed too much in, what, 50-something years, you know, 49, whatever that happened. You know, you hear about cases, oh, you'd be sentenced to 20 years, but then they don't ever serve it full full time either. So you well, take it also it also probably depends on the state and where yes. it happens because state. Well, thankfully, yeah. states have different laws in place now. Correct. But I. Yeah. And was he a yeah. young man it, or do you just know? I didn't have his birth. I didn't have his date of birth or anything like or anything like that. Um, I couldn't find that. And even, you know, when Google got popular and stuff, we try to find him. But we do know that he passed away many years ago. Our brother found like his sister online, um, but we think it's his sister. But yeah, we couldn't. We think he's he's passed, um, but I don't know. Live how old for him us. to have to live with that, what he did for the rest of right. his life right. is just horrendous. Like to kill sure. a fan, like a mother, I just can't even imagine. But I did want to ask that. When you say that you were you grew up in Miami, I want to get to the swimming part. I I love what you said that you would swim angry. So swimming for you was an outlet. I think it's so important um, just because I am very, I'm a mental health podcaster. I talk a lot about outlets and things that you can do to try and help yourself. I know that I, I'm a professional speed walker these days. I used to be a runner and run marathons. Now I can't do that anymore, but I, I, I'm a professional speed walker with my two Labradors. Did you... Did you use swimming as an outlet? Like, how were you introduced to swimming? And tell me about some of the, like, you obviously must have had to have a lot of surgeries. And uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, my brother and I were introduced to swimming by being thrown into the pool. That, that was basically it. You know, me too. I, my, dad, my dad didn't know how to <laughs> swim, so he wanted us to learn. So we started yeah. to learn at New York. And then in Miami... You know, swimming's year-round. It's just a thing to do. So we joined a swim team in 75, you know, and and that was it. You know, we were off and running for that, you know, two days practices and whatnot. But it was a good outlet. And also the other outlets I had was my imagination, where I could escape from reality. I would go play with my Star Wars toys or, you know, pretend I was Spider-Man. Or, and then when I got into magic as a kid, my grandfather took me to the magic store, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. So that was being creative, and it, and it allowed me to find my sense of humor. And also helped with the speech therapy and the speech issues, because now as a kid, I was performing in front of people. And, you know, even certain words I can't say, or I know sometimes I still speak too fast or mumble, but that gave me the courage to overcome those type of obstacles in, in life, you know, with, with the magic as, as a young boy. And then I didn't start to feel angry or use something as an outlet until I got to college. And I started to think, and I started to process things because now I was, what, 18, 19 years old. And you're away from home. I went to college in a small uh, Ohio town called Ashland. I was away from my dad, you know, away from everyone. And I started to think about my own mortality. Well, why was I here? So I started to think about survivor's guilt. I go, why was I kept alive? You know, all I do is eat, sleep, and poop. You know, I was an infant. My mom was a school teacher. She she had a life. So swimming was a very good way to and and I was a distance swimmer. So I spent a lot of time in the pool, going back and forth, back and forth, going and you think about all those things, trying to find those answers. You're never gonna get those answers, but that was just a good way for me to cope. And so were you, so you were, you were a competitive swimmer. So did yes, you, you yes. swam college swimming and then, um, oh. did you continue to swim after college? Oh, I, I tried. No, no, one, yeah. no one wants to see me a speedo anymore. So, uh, <laughs> it was just, <laughs> um, no, I stopped. I had to get uh, knee surgery before my junior year. And then I had shoulder surgery before my senior year and I rushed rehab. And kind of undid what the surgery did. So 
Um, you know, when you swim for so long, those injuries, as you mentioned, do catch up to you, you know, because it's overuse of training. And, you know, as, as a runner, you know, and now you're speed walking, you know how your body wears down. So I was swimming from age four to, what, 21. And, you know, that's a lot of time in, in the pool where your body kind of shuts down. And when I had, when I got injuries or tendonitis, again, we go back to the car crash, you know, is this cause and effect? But the doctors never knew, you know, anything. Uh, about that since I was, you know, a, a teenager and growing, you know, and you know, the bones healed for, for, you know, for everything. Tell me, tell me about, so once you kind of got out of school and you couldn't swim anymore, because swimming, sw- I swim, I was a competitive swimmer as a kid too. And so I understand, same thing. My parents threw us in a pool. <laughs> I grew up in Potomac, Maryland. We all, everyone swam. I was the worst swimmer in the family. I was horrible. And my sisters were always the better athletes. And then I had a younger brother. He was a good swimmer. But I was the worst and I hated it. And the only reason I did the swim meets is so I could get McDonald's afterwards. Because um, I loved, remember, like you would do swim, pe- swim. I don't know if it was like that where, where you would do the swim meet and then all the whole swim team would go to McDonald's and my mom would somewhere. let me get an apple pie. Was it like that for you? It was a little bit different. I mean, we would go out to dinner. Like if we were, if we uh-huh. you know, were in a uh, weekend at Fort Lauderdale, the, uh, the swimming hall of fame, we would go find some restaurant, you know, with the parents yeah. and, the, and the kids and they're the very long tables. I'm sure the servers hated us, you know, cause we had the big parties and, and whatnot, you know, of, of coming in. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't recall ever going to McDonald's afterwards, but, um, but we had those type of meals. You know, we um, had like more, we would always have morning meets. It's just one of my happiest memory being on swim team, even though I was horrible. It's just being around like it was, it was a great, great memory for me as a kid. But what I wanted to point out is something you said about thinking, because if you were a long distance swimmer, you would have all that time to like think about things. And I do this, I would do the same thing when I was like running or cycling, you know, um, it's it's a really good outlet for your mental health just to be, but also to be creative because i'm also creative i was an actress as the Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. This time of year is the worst. I feel like I can't do anything and I can't enjoy my dinner because I can't taste my food and I can't work out because I feel tired and distracted. I can't even feel like I can host this show because my voice sounds like a duck. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D, designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out. I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. As a kid, it was my outlet for escaping okay. things. Um, I I really think that there's a lot of people like that, and I think it's important. I think exercise and physical activity is like one of the best things you can do for your mental health. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp Online Therapy will assess your needs and you can be matched with your own professional therapist in less than 48 hours. You know, I'm going to tell you, 
and I openly talk about this on the podcast, that I went through hell and back a few years ago, and I was at my lowest point of my life. And my therapist, I believe, contribute to helping save me. So I'm a huge advocate of therapy. The best thing about BetterHelp is it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online, available, available to people worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. And they have a special offer for my listeners. Get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash judgingmegan. That's 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash judgingmegan. I totally agree. You know, the only time I self-medicated when I was depressed is I had to stop swimming because of the surgery. I was drinking Budweiser beer and pain pills for a week because I was, you know, when you're you're an athlete and you can't perform anymore, you know, we coaches talk about success, but but there's no really help in terms of life after, you know, what if you're injured and you can't do that for 27 years. I was a swimmer. I knew school and swimming. And just like when COVID hit and everyone lost their jobs or whatever it was, yes. that's, that's how you identify, right? And yes. now all of a sudden like that, I didn't have that anymore. And how do you cope? Um, you know, I couldn't so, you, so did you, you turn to alcohol? I Just for that week because I was like, you know, self-pity and all those type of things. Yeah. And I was in college and no one knew what I was doing. Um, you know, I hid that. And like most men, I will say men, we hide our depression. We don't want to talk about it because then – we feel ashamed. Uh, we don't want to be picked on. It's a sign of weakness. And then I, I kind of woke up and went, you know, during that week when I can't do this anymore. And then let me go find something else I can't do um, instead of, you know, abusing myself. And, you know, because it wasn't a healthy way. It wasn't the way I was raised. And it was just that one moment of um, despair, I guess, in terms of how am I supposed to live my life? And then, you know, I went back to, you know, how I was raised in terms of, you know, overcoming things. And I also, as a swimmer, you learn those things. I think as athletes, you, you learn how to overcome certain things. I had to shift my mind to another lane, so to speak. Um, no pun intended for swimming, but that's what I'm using right now uh, for it. And, you know, I went back to uh, using humor and friends and, and those type of things. So I realized, you know, the, the road I was going down was I was going to toss myself out of my second floor window in college. I didn't know what to do. That was like that. That, that was, was after time. that was after you had the surgery. I've taught yeah. just so you know, I've had other athletes on same thing. Nina Sassman yeah. Pogue was a guest of mine. She was training to go to the Olympics in college, injured herself. It's very common, I think. And then I did have an Olympic athlete on Ariana Corkers, who was an a sw- Olympic swimmer. Her story, you know, she went through a whole lot. I won't go into it, but same thing. You kind of like, that's your identity. That's what who you know. That's how you were able to um, deal with what happened to you. You know, even though you can't remember it, you know it happened. Right. And it's a reality for you for the rest of your life. What I wanted to also touch on, what was your relationship like with your dad? Did he... You said he traveled a lot for work. Um, he did back then, yeah. Okay. A, a car crash, and then when we moved, when we when we moved to Miami, he was supposed to go to work with a cousin, and then that fell apart. And then he was an accountant, a, a controller by trade. But I always felt as I got older, he was a little bit overprotective, and I think rightly so because yeah. I'm the one that almost died, right? So yeah. You know, going away for college was like my breakout. Like, oh, I'm finally free from my dad in a way. But yet you had to do those Sunday 9 a.m. phone calls. And if you didn't call, it's like, hey, how come you didn't call me? Are you still alive? Those type of things. And yeah. I was like, just send money and Chef Gordie. That's all I really wanted. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was a good relationship. He was a very kind, caring person and always cared about other people. But I also realized that he was never the same. Uh, and. I didn't understood that why he couldn't talk about my mom because it was still so painful. Um, I didn't realize that until I was 24, the first time I saw it, when my grandfather passed away and we went to the cemetery for the very first time. That was the very first time I 
you know, I visited my mom. When I was 24 years old. And he sat down on a bench not too far away from our family plot. And I saw his reaction and, and the pain he was in from visiting my mom. And that's when I got it. I got, whoa, he can't talk about it because he's he never got help. I mean, there's no counseling, you know, for 1970 for a man. He's not going to do it no matter what. So where was that outlet? And he bottled it up inside. So when you see that behavior, you role, you role model that behavior. So I did what my father did when it came to pain and grief and those type of things. And when he passed away, I remember – in 2012, he sent me and my brother an email on December 19th, 2012. Would have been my parents' 48th wedding anniversary. And he said even to that day, it was still too hard to talk about. So when he passed away in 2018, and then my aunt passed away 90 days later, I was heading towards, you know, that depression was, was, was around me like a nice warm blanket. Yeah. And there was a week where I was like – it's not like I wanted to die. I just wanted the pain to stop. I had a plan. I had all that stuff ready to go. And then I went, well, I can't send my brother and Dolly back to the cemetery three times in six months. I can't do that. So I, I had asked for help. And I that got was, into that was, two, that was 2018, you said? Yeah, 2000. I know I'm jumping around a little bit, right? No, no, but, no. It's uh, probably my fault, but it's just things that I... You know, just from the conversation that I'm just like, I want to know about that because that's so important. Um, And something that we touched on in the very beginning is it's, it makes me angry. I don't know. And you must feel the same way because it was your dad, but just that our parents and that generation did not have the same tools and, and things that we do today, right? It's okay. Right. It's still not fully accepted. Believe me, I have very few men come on my podcast. I beg that anytime I have a man that's like, I want to come share my story. I'm like, hallelujah, because I have a lot of women that, you know, that's how women are. We like to talk about our feelings and we like to be the way that, you know, talk about anything. And that's how women are brought up to talk about things. But Men are not. And so the men that come on and they tell their stories like you do of just being like, I need to do this. I need to keep myself busy with that. And then also talking about your dad, who obviously never, ever got over that horrendous loss, who who really could and then didn't have the resources to ask for help. It just wasn't accepted. You know, my own mother was on this podcast pretty recently. Same thing. My mom, I'm in my 40s. My mom was born in the um, 1940s. She's in her 70s. Um, did not, she was attacked as a young girl. Traumatized. Lived her, has lived her whole life freaking out. Like, you know, it affected us, but she never has been in therapy in her entire life. And she lost her daughter. She lost my dad. She lost, she's been through more loss than you can imagine. And it just isn't, wasn't something that was accepted. So I really appreciate the fact when I have somebody like you come on and talk about their own struggles and then hitting a wall because it's eventually always going to catch up to all of us. I have news for you. Your trauma, especially if you're a trauma survivor as a young kid, like you were, I was, it is always going to come back to haunt you. It doesn't matter where, what outlet you're going to use, whether it be swimming, whether it be running, whether it be alcohol, whether it be whatever it is, it's always going to come back. So I really wanted I, to point that out. Thank you. I, and I totally agree with you on terms of that because it was just, you know, in my dad, you think about 1970, not only the resources, but then it was just society, right? It was frowned yeah. upon for men to do yeah. that. Even now, talk about law enforcement. You know, trying to go counseling or athletes, it's still a sign of weakness when we both know this, asking for help is a sign of strength. And it's one of the, the best things I ever did because the very first question my counselor said was, hey, let's talk about your mom's death and how that impacted all your relationships. And I was like, I'm not here to talk about that. She's like, yeah, you are. And, and my counselor yeah. was a friend of mine. So she knew she could dive in deeply that in that first minute. And I was 47 years old and now – finally talk about my mother's death and processing and, and doing right. And, and someone asked if I wanted to go on medication and I'm not against it, but the problem was me. 
you know, I could be on Lexapro or whatever it is. That's part of the equation. But I'm still the problem. And, you know, this, if you don't fix the problem, then no matter how much medication they're going to give me, I'm never going to get better. And I was willing to do whatever because I didn't want to live life like that anymore. You know, I was tired of being depressed. I was tired of not having my humor and, and you know, making people laugh. And I was broken. And I was going through a relationship, and, and relationship at, at that time. And Dolly told me, you can't be in a relationship until you fix your foundation. Yeah. And, you know, this woman is, is a gold mine for still giving, you know, support and all that stuff. And it was, a tr- and I was like, all right, I have to do this. And, you know, we ended the, the relationship because I'm like, I got to focus on me. I'm not good to anyone else if I'm broken. So that foundation was very important. And then it was a, it was heavy six months where the counselor said, at those end of the six months, you look like a different person. And I went, I feel like a different person. I felt lighter and I felt so much better and i knew those tools to help cope you know the healthy ones i was hiking you know i got back into photography that my dad was into and in fact that's how my mom and my dad met my dad was a school photographer at nyu and he was shooting a school dance and the only person looking at him on the dance floor was my mom which you know which is pretty cool so my brother and i both got into photography you know um as kids and we got we picked up the cameras again i picked it up before my father passed away, my brother picked it up like right after the memorial service. He picked up my camera and then he's like, never put it down. So you're right. We have to find those things that make us happy. I love doing nature photography and, and, you know, going on hikes in Ohio. And those are my healthy ways to combat depression. And, and, uh, so whenever I have those moments where I just want to crawl into a hole, never come out, I went, I have to force myself to go outside, hike see a movie, take my camera somewhere and just, you know, cope and, and use those tools that therapy taught me. I, I, I think it's interesting that you also, you know, as a survivor of just the loss of a parent so traumatically when you were young, it does make sense that you hit a wall with your dad. You know, it is, it's something I actually think about with my own mom that I just can't even imagine not having her here. Um, and what I know that trauma and grief is a lifelong process, even though you don't remember your grief, it is always there. Right. So to be able to have that outlet and then also to be able to be so open, you know, that you're like, I'm struggling. I didn't want to be here. And then being a man and talking about it is huge because what you're doing, Michael, is you're helping other men realize it's okay to talk about struggling that this, you know, the, the suicide rates post COVID are four times what they were prior to COVID for specifically between 13 and 24 year olds. Uh That's um, like young kids. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you're telling your story is just, we need more of it. And I don't know. And that's part of why I do this because if more people were like open and weren't just like hiding behind and I do it too, PS. I'm constantly like posting on Instagram. I call it my Facebook life. I'm like, oh my God, I wish I had my Facebook life. It is so freaking awesome. <laughs> I never go through anything bad in my Facebook life, but in my <laughs> real life, even when I was two years ago, also several years ago, also suicidal, looking out at the ocean with my two little girls playing in the water and was like, I don't want to go on. I was posting that like pictures probably that day saying how happy I am, you know? So it's so important. The more men that are able to share with other men, I mean, I've had some Mark, uh, Mark shooter shutters, another one, an author, Abraham Scully. I've had several men that have come on this podcast and shared. And so I think it's really brave. My next question is, did you, was there a certain kind of therapy that you did? Because a lot of times if you've gone through a trauma and you can't remember it, obviously you were eight months. Right. I, eight weeks, I pers- yeah. Did you do EMDR? Yeah. Like, what did you do? Tell I, me did. About that. I did. I did. Isn't it great? I did it. Yeah. I had to go back into grief counseling at the 50th anniversary of, of the crash. And okay. I was doing a program for DUI offenders. I've been speaking. I've been doing this program called Magical Life to high schools and colleges since you know since I was in my early twenties. And, yeah. and 
I was doing a program for DUI offenders, and I broke down in the bathroom because uh, I was doing it around the 50th anniversary, either on that day or the day before or after. I broke down in the bathroom. Of course, I broke down doing the program. I broke down in the car, and I went, I'm not right anymore. So I had to go back to grief counseling, and my counselor said, are you willing to do EMDR? I went, Look, I'm willing to do anything it takes for me yeah. to get better. And yeah. So we did it, and I thought it was very cool because I went back to my ha- you know, my happy place, and you could put things in the jar, put them on the shelf. Cause I had to put a few things in the shelf. One of my best friends, John Kelly, he died as a result of being a drunk driver. He was in a one-car accident at age 33. So I had a lot of anger towards John even. Oh, he was a driver? Recently. He was a driver because I was, I was so mad at him because I was like, how dare you do this to me? You knew my life story, and you – we're still the one to drive drunk. So the EMDR really helped me work on John's that John's grief and to let that anger go. And again, I felt so much, I'll say the word lighter, you know, yeah. in terms of my soul, getting rid of that, that anger towards John. I loved him like a brother. I knew him for 15 years and, you know, through college and, and life. And, you know, it was, um, I had a, EMGR really helped. So that was the last time I was in grief counseling. I didn't have the blinkers. I had like the, the handheld um sensor. Me too. Me yeah. too. And, that, and, and I, I and honestly, cool. like I'm about to uh, my husband's like, you know, and I and I'm pretty open about this. Um it's a like I said earlier, it's a lifelong pre- process. I might have like really good months. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about this, but like Yep. Kind of hit a wall pretty kind of recently. I just think there was just so much going on in the world. And I was like, what is happening? And I started to find myself like struggling again. And I and I I told my husband, I'm like, I'm struggling. He's like, Megan, you need to get back into counseling. And I was like, well, it's for me, it's not like a counseling thing because I've been in and out of therapy throughout my life. It's something that I I started EMDR. I loved it. I think it's great. I just need to find the right person. Okay. So I say a lot like there, I don't know how you feel about this, but therapy's like dating. So I have my regular therapist who's like, you know, Dr. Nadine Macaluso been on the podcast numerous times. She just doesn't do EMDR. So I have to find, I went to somebody, I have to find somebody else, but it is, mm. it was so impactful for me, because I do, I did bring in these memories and now I think about them and I'm like, that is insane. I don't even think about them. Isn't it crazy? It is. You know, it, it's amazing because we had all that stuff stored up inside and then yeah. we release, we go, why was I so afraid of that memory or that experience? Right. And, and the way we could process it and overcome it, um, I think allows us to, when the next time something that happens, you kind of go, I'm not afraid of that anymore. And that's why talking, yeah, about, talking about once you let it out, you know, once you let that secret out, like depression or grief or, you know, whatever it is, you go, it wasn't too, it wasn't so bad after all. Cause we're, we're, you know, we don't want to do it cause we're ashamed. We're like, Oh, how are we going to be judged? And I think I don't really care how I'm judged. Uh, you know, if I say it, if I help one person, then I know by doing my program for all these years, you know, it came down to, Whereas I didn't want other families going through the same pain I thought my, you know, my family went through. And I could do something. I could either crawl into a bottle my entire life, go, woe is me, I'm a victim, blah, blah, blah. But I also think my yeah. mom wouldn't want that life for me. And I think it's the same thing with counseling and, and doing that. If we could help one person, you know, and, and they go, well, if they did it and they enjoyed it or got better, then why, am I, why would, should I be so afraid of that? And... Um, yeah, I just I just ripped off the bandaid and went and just dove right into it, and it was it was powerful. And it's also so freeing because it's like, yeah, you know, to be I spent I'm in my 40s. I've I spent the entire first like f- before I was in my 40s years always caring so much about what other people thought of me, and I did. I hid behind like characters and my acting and my humor because I think I'm pretty darn yeah. funny, and it was really just like, because I was afraid of what people would think. And then one day I had just had, had so many crappy things happen. I just went, I'm done. And I don't give a who, like what you think of me. And honestly, when you do that, you're, you're kind of like, 
you know, every week I do this every Tuesday, my episodes come out and I get to freaking meet people like you that are doing something to help other people and using their experiences. Thank you. And it's great. Can you tell me about the magic of life? Like, I want to know exactly what that is. So many, many moons ago, uh, I created this program with the magic. I had a, I had a student. I was in grad school at University of Akron for higher education, mm-hmm. and uh, I was advising a student group. And one of my students asked if I could put together a fun program about the dangers of alcohol. I went, "Yeah, I'll just do some magic tricks and and whatnot." And I needed a title for it. And I went, "Well, let's call it the magical life. Why, why, why not?" You know, I'm, I was doing magic back then, so it just kind of flowed. And I knew about the college circuit because I was in higher education. I was one of those campus activity boards, you know, nerdy kids in college. So I knew about that market. And I wanted to get into speaking. And that's how it kind of started, speaking for colleges and high schools, you know, talking about the dangers of drunk driving and, and so forth. And I was using, you know, certain magic tricks to symbolize the dangers of alcohol. And then when 9-11 hit, I kind of I stopped doing magic because I couldn't bring like the needle through the balloon trick. I couldn't bring a needle on the plane because that was now a weapon. Um, so I started, I got rid of that and I just started to do, you know, five, 10 minutes of stand up in the program. So I started doing stand up comedy in grad school and I was still in grad school. Um, I was in my last semester. I got into comedy and uh, so I could always make people laugh. So the magic program combined humor my story, audience participation for fun, but yet emotional inspiration program. And I've been lucky enough to do it for military, you know, bases, uh, high schools and colleges. But I'll be honest with you, Megan, the, the most rewarding audience has been the last 10 years when I go to a court and talk in front of DUI offenders. I never thought I would ever talk in front of offenders because I always saw them as the enemy, right? Mm-hmm. They killed mm-hmm. someone like that, killed my mother. But luckily, I was blessed with Dolly in my life because I could do this program with compassion and um, not be angry. My friends were like, oh, we're going to yell at them. Like, no, they've already been yelled at by the judge. You know, if I make them laugh first, then, you know, this humor will disarm people. So the first yeah. five, ten minutes is stand up. They walk in to the courtroom. Their arms are crossed. And they're pissed. They don't want to be there. But, man, you make them laugh. You can take them anywhere you want. And. And afterwards, whether they buy a book or they donate to the foundation or they share their story about being sober for six months or how you impacted their lives, it's an incredible feeling. And, you know, you go back to, I look, I was just a kid from New York, you know, raised in Miami, Florida, and blessed to be able to do this. And that's why I think everyone should share their story because we all have powerful stories. We never know how our story can impact someone else. So by doing the Magic Life program for you know, 26, 27 years has been a great outcome of the crash in terms of making a difference in someone's life. Do you ever think about like, and I might, I, this, I, like I always ask this question, but do you ever think about what your mom, cause you, we talked about what ifs, what your mom would think of what you're doing today. I sometimes think about like my dad and what he would think. What do you think about? I, I would hope proud right because people will say oh your mom's very proud of you and then i would hope proud because my dad would write on my birthday cards you know i'm very proud of you so i continued it and my goal growing up was you know my i guess not a goal mantra because i have by my front door sort of on my front door i have an eight by ten picture of her and with me my brother that's the only picture i have so when i leave my place i go look i want to make someone laugh and make a difference in someone's life but i also said for many years i just want my mom to be proud of me yeah. And hopefully, cause like any Jewish mom, any mom, you know, you want, you know, be bragging with other parents. And that's what I always wanted my mom to do is to be, you know, that's my, that's my son. You know, as my yeah. dad would say, that's my boy. Yeah. And you want, um, I think parents want to be proud of their kids and vice versa. And, and yeah, I'm doing this to honor my mom. You know, I do it, you know, someone had to speak for her. I do my program for three reasons. Number one, for my mom, because I had to stand up for her. Uh, number two, for other people who don't have the ability to share their own story. So my story is their story. Number three, so other people don't have to. You know, this is my life. I don't want this being someone else's life. You know, I, we, uh, as I say in my program, we want the doors to this, you know, club being impacted by drunk driving to close, but it, it never closes. Uh, yeah. I don't want other people going through this type of pain. And just like you with your own trauma, 
you don't want other people going through that. So you tried your hardest to do it. And it's tough. There's days where you want to quit. You kind of go, I just don't want to do this anymore because it's taxing. And then yeah. you do a program and someone you don't even know comes up to you and says, thank you. You kind of go, well, this is why I do this. And, and it's uh, the best It's not feeling, so much right? about me. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's awesome. It's, it's better than writing feeling. a joke, doing it at a comedy club, and having an audience laugh. There's no better feeling than making a difference in someone's life. 150%. Let me, let me ask you, what inspired you to, to write the book? Like how did uh, you my know friend you always Ray wanted Morton. to write a book? Uh-huh. No, uh, my friend Gray Morton, a very funny, very funny, very funny comedian. He was on America's Got Talent a few years ago. We were working the comedy club, and we're in the sound room talking about our life and whatnot. And I told him about my life as you know the survivor, the drunk driver, and being raised by Dolly. And he goes, "You got to write a book about your life." And I was what twenty six, twenty seven. And I go, "Yeah, whatever." And he made me promise. He he shook. He he said in his hand, and we're and and we're shaking hands in the sound room of the club. Where like the showroom manager is announcing my name to be on on stage, and Greg wasn't going to let go until I said I promise. So I said <laughs> I promise to get on stage, but I made a promise to my friend to write a book. And you know, it took me twenty years. If I wrote it back then, I was not the same person. I had to go through the trials and tribulations. I had to lose. This one sound really bad. I didn't have to lose John. John was part of the story. Uh, my father yeah. passed away, my aunt, going to counseling because I'm a much different person I am than I was 10 years ago, five years ago in my 20s. So over the years, I wrote a little bit. I would stop. I would, I'm a huge procrastinator because I like naps. And uh, I would just put it off. And then when my father passed away and my, and my aunt passed away, and I went through counseling. I went, now I have an ending to this story. And I got back into writing. And I finished it. Greg and I were working together, and I could finally look my friend in the eye and go, "Look, Greg, I, I fulfilled my promise to you." And for him to read it and say, "You know, one line you made me laugh, the other line you made me cry," I'm, I'm glad I was able to finish it—not for me, but for other people who need to hear that story. And it's been amazing to hear from strangers how my story has helped them get through their experience with losing someone to a drunk drive or grief yes. or trauma. And, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. Even my own family members who said, you just thought you were always okay. They didn't realize the pain and trauma I went through because I was a kid, right? I was playing with my Star Wars toys. I was being Spider-Man. I was swimming. I was, you know, happy-go-lucky. But as you know, you you use humor to hide that pain. And a hundred percent. And a lot of times stand-up comedians and funny yeah. people are the most depressed, they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's which, which I think is true because we use it as an outlet and yeah. Um in, in a healthy way. You know, I also know you know friends who are comedians that you know are alcoholics because we need that high. And 100%. I learned how to balance that high off stage, you know, on from on stage to off stage, whether it's photography. I just found another creative outlet that gives me that same feeling um, that I get on stage. Well, I could talk to you forever. I think you're super inspiring. I also just love, I really love what you've said throughout this episode. Um, I, your book is called The Magic of Life, A Son's Story of Hope After Tragedy, Grief, and a Speedo, which is the best title ever. Um, you can see, you can see Michael and myself and all my glory and my glasses, um, on, on YouTube, uh, judging Megan, M-E-G-H-A-N and Michael, it's been a, such an honor to talk to you. I, I really love so much of what you said and it's, I close every episode with the following, be happy by making other people happy. And I'll say that you you might want to hear this because my father used to say that he he was oh, really powerful. funny and he did a lot for other people and he would say be happy by making other people happy. So to my listeners, the best, the most fulfilling thing that I do in my life is do I love doing this? It is hard, like you talked about. Some days I'm like, I don't want to do it. I want to go do something else. But I love doing it because it does make me happy. 
I love hearing from all of you. Thank you for your reviews. Thank you for messaging me. It means so much to me. And Michael, you're the best. I can't wait. Thank you very much. Dive into your book. And everyone, be happy by making other people happy. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.